Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey everybody, James Shepard here. I'd like to welcome you to the Merchant Sales Podcast. I am excited about this episode today. Uh, first off, we start out talking to John Buchanan over at Rev19, and we talk about the challenge of building the 1099 sales channel. Why do so many people struggle with it? What is required? We even get into some of the kind of post-COVID-19 as things are opening up. Hopefully it's post-COVID-19 as things are opening up. Uh, you know, how are we going to uh, address that? How do we reactivate the sales team? And so we talk about that. Then Patty in the Insiders Report gives us an update on just the state of the economy and the state of the, the merchants out there today as far as revenue numbers. Some really interesting and really good revenue numbers coming out. Big bump in uh, revenue for retail and restaurants. So we talk about that. Um, then the questions from the field, I actually do something I've never done before. Um, I actually interview, do a really quick short interview with Calvin, uh, who has a sales team. And it was interesting because I did a video a while back talking about uh, how you know large merchants a lot of times shy away from cash discounting. Well, here Calvin is saying, hey, that's what I sell is big merchants on cash discounting. And I, you know, I've never done it before myself, not a, haven't done that a lot. So I thought, let me just get somebody on that's done this. And so we talk about how to sell large merchants on cash discounting. Super interesting, quick 10 or 15 minute conversation I had with Calvin. So I hope you love the episode. Jump in and enjoy it. Again, my name is James Shepard and I wish you tremendous success. All right, everybody. I am here today with John Buchanan. John is the VP of Sales over at Rev19. How you doing today, John? I'm doing great, James. How are you? I am doing fantastic. Uh, we got uh, Patty with us as well, and uh, we are going to talk about building sales partnerships to drive growth. Um, but before we dive into that, John, love to get your background. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up in this crazy industry and how you ended up with Rev19. Yeah, sure. So. I've been in the space for 13 years now, uh, which is hard to believe because I can't <laughs> believe it was 13 years ago. I was selling to merchants directly, but that is how long it's been, um, sure. <clears throat> which is where I got my start. Actually, I was um, I was in inside sales for a smaller ISO 13 years ago, and that's how I, I cut my teeth in the industry, selling directly to merchants. I moved into uh, sales management roles throughout the years there, ultimately landed in an agent ISO recruiting uh, role, which I really loved. I mean, that's where I found my niche in the industry is working with agents and ISOs. And now I find myself in more of a channel sales management role, which is, sure. you know, where I find myself here at Red 19. Awesome, man. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, it's, you got into the industry probably about a year before I did. So uh, it's, uh, you know, we've had a few changes over the last 12 or 13 years, I guess. Just a couple. <laughs> a couple here and there. <laughs> you guys are such newbies. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny. So, uh, you know, John, I want to talk about sales models. And so, uh, you know, being in the position that you're in, you know, you see a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, obviously, uh, a big portion of our industry, uh, a big portion of the merchant deals that are written in our industry are coming from independent agents and, you know, small ISOs. Um, I think the majority of them, they really do want to support their merchants. Uh, they want to do the right thing. You know, they want to build a solid book. Um, can you talk about how you see our industry developing just in terms of sales channel? You know, what, what is important to this group of independent partners that exist out there? Yeah, sure. So I totally agree. I mean, I think the, the growth is almost, you know, just wholly in the, um, independent agent ISO, ISV, VAR, that outside sales partner is definitely where I see the growth going, right? So um, merchants, they want somebody that they can trust, you know, somebody that they're familiar with, right? whether it's somebody local, whether it's somebody who's, you know, it's specifically, you know, expert level in their vertical, if they are experts in the solution that they're using, whatever the case may be, they're not just, they're no longer Googling for a sales rep to find the best credit card processing, right? The lowest rates. They want somebody who can own, almost essentially partner with them, right? Um, who can make sure that they can help their businesses run as efficiently as possible. In the payment space, we're getting more involved into the merchant's actual business right. more than we ever have before. Right. So with that, they need more of a trust level with the person that they're working with. Somebody they know that's not going to disappear after they sign under the dotted line, right? Right. And maybe even somebody that's got a little bit more of an expertise as well, right? Like in, in actually how the business runs, maybe setting up a POS system, integrating with technology, stuff like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. You have, you have to bring some value to the merchant, you know, and you can't hide behind that because you're going to be there for the merchant. They need somebody that's there for them every step of the way. Know that they're a phone call away. You're checking in every couple of months or whatever the case may be. You're a familiar face to that merchant. You need to 
need to bring that level of expertise and that value every single time. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, so, you know, it's obviously a great opportunity, this whole independent channel, but as you know, a lot of ISOs, you know, really struggle to get this model going, get it off the ground. Um, smaller ISOs maybe recruit four or five independent reps and they don't go anywhere with it. Larger ISOs will recruit a hundred and they'll get one rep to, to make some sales. Um, and it's really been interesting lately just seeing ISVs who, uh, all want to gain access to this distribution, you know, like they all reach out to me, you know, help us, you know, we're going to build the biggest 1099 team to sell our, you know, text marketing that's integrated with payment solutions or whatever mm -hmm. it is. And my advice lately to them has been don't even try <laughs> because <laughs> the success rate is so low. Um, yeah. You know, why is that? Like, why do you think that these companies, in your opinion, that you've seen, like, why do they struggle so much getting this independent sales channel going? Sure. So for one, it's not easy, right? I mean, there's sure. nothing easy about it. Uh, independent agents, ISOs, resellers of any kind are not a particularly easy group to support. They're demanding because they have a right to be. They bring right. a lot of value in the business that they have control over and the trust that they have in their customers and what they're bringing to you. So they, they understand the value and the complex nature of the business and they need a company who can support that. So aside from just being able to create as much opportunity for them as possible with the different products and solution sets and platforms that you can offer them. Like hopefully if anybody's thinking about building out a partner program, they first think of that, right? Which in itself isn't easy to do, but I think it all starts with the not so glamorous side of it, which is the support side, right? So um, to have a, a strong support structure, whether it be just on the sales support side, right? So pricing, applications, statement analysis, I mean, these are all critical things to helping your independent sales partners go out there and acquire business. And then once they do, can you ship the equipment out? Can you provide a bar sheet right. promptly? I mean, can you work efficiently to get that merchant on board? Then once they're on board, do you have groups that are, that are able to support those partners or those partners merchants? And although that sounds really simple and like obvious, it's really difficult to build and within each one of those tiers, it's really important to have highly experienced people, which in itself is very difficult to find, right? So support people, good quality support people are hard to find no matter what industry you're talking about. Sure. But to find it in our specific business is especially tough, right? Yeah. Um, it, it, and you mentioned ISVs in particular. I mean, ISVs, you take a step back, right? If you're, if you're an independent agent, you know, if you're an ISO, right? And you're looking to build an independent agent model right. or an ISO model or whatever, you, all the things that I talked about, you know, you're going to have to go out there and build, you know, it's not easy, but you know, you have to go out there and do it. And everybody kind of understands that. Uh, but you're doing that under the assumption that if you get salespeople on board, you know how to train them. You have something built out to help get these right. salespeople off the ground, get them out there and prospecting you. Right. And just get them to take action. Merchants, right. Right. ISVs, they may not have that same level of expertise, right? I'm not saying all ISVs aren't right. capable of it. I'm sure plenty are but you got to take a step back. The merchant service is basics, right? That's not their core business. Necessarily. Right. So do you right. have that expertise? I mean, do you have somebody who can do applications? I mean, there, I know there's ISVs out there who have merchant service departments, right? And it's a very small team supporting thousands and thousands right. of customers. Right. Right. So it's that level of expertise that agents and ISOs bring um, to supporting their independent sales reps and those reps under them that ISVs, I think kind of lack. Right. Um, you know, beyond that, I mean, I think we can all agree ISVs and bars are starting to look more and more like an independent agent or an ISO. Yes. And the, and the bottom line is it's not a real easy group to support. And I know there's right, plenty right. of people that would argue with me on this subject and I'm not saying it's definitive, but right. in my personal opinion, I think it's easier for a support group, an independent agent ISO support model and sales model to adapt to selling ISV products. Right. Than it would be for an ISV to adapt to supporting an independent agent ISO yeah. sales and support model. That that's a good point. Sense. Yeah, well, that's I think point. that makes a lot of sense, John. And you know, I mean, really, what you're talking about there, also though, in terms of how you build the team, is about a mutual trust factor, right? I mm -hmm. mean, they have to trust that you can come to the table with the support they need. You have to trust that they're really going to go out there and you know create these partnerships with merchants that merchants mm -hmm. can then trust. So it's really kind of like trust all around. Is that what you're saying? There's no doubt about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
Yeah. And how do you, you know, I think a lot of people that are listening right now, excuse me, might say, well, what are you talking about? Trust, John? You know, these are, these are 1099 contractors. We don't trust them as far as we can throw them. So, you know, and we can't throw them very far. So, you know, (laughs) what are your thoughts on, you know, how do you actually build out a, an independent channel that, where there's mutual trust? Because for a lot of people, it almost, that almost seems like a misnomer or, you know what I mean? A contradiction of terms there. Or just yeah, lofty, it, lofty, uh, you know, lofty <laughs> terminology, right? right? <laughs> yeah, trust. Let's start with the definition, right? <laughs> yeah, right. right. Um, no, it, it, honestly, I think um, in any sales channel that I build uh, for independent outside agent partners, right, or ISO partners or sales partners of any kind, it really starts with trust. And I know that's kind of cliche, but it first we're asking them to trust us with the customers that they're bringing on board, right? Right. They have built these, you know, relationships in one way or another. And the bottom line is their merchants are entrusting them to find the right home. If things go wrong, we may get a call, of course, on our support department and heck, the call may may end up on my desk at some point, but chances are something goes wrong. That's on the face of the independent sales partner who brought us a deal. So it's super important that they trust us first, right? And then I think it's only right that we trust them in exchange. Um, right. Of course, there's there's bad apples out there, sure. right? We can't let it can't let it ruin the bunch. Right. Um, right. But that's when we have to kind of trust our operational uh, checks and balances, right? So hmm. you know, like there, we have we have measures in place to protect us in those instances, and we know there's a certain degree of, of trust, a leap of faith, if you will, that you're taking in this business whenever you partner up with somebody. Um, but honestly, I mean, you know, it's it really just comes down to you know, I, I, I trust that our agents know what's best for their merchants more than I do. You know what sure. I mean? Um, they come in all walks of life, all over the country, all different verticals are coming from all over the place. For me to assume that I know exactly what's best for all of those, it's out of line. You know what I mean? Right. So right. It, it, it's just, it comes down to trusting that they know what's best for their mm. customers and doing everything I can to support it. Right. Mm. And honestly, when I'm building a partner program, it's, it sounds simple, but it's really not. It's every, just do as much as you know that agents and ISOs like and do as little as you know, they don't <laughs> like. Right. And, and we've all been experienced like enough to know what that is. Right. They right. like to be communicated. So be upfront with them, be honest with them, right. shoot them straight. You know, this is their book of business. You know, they don't like to be blindsided by anything, especially by something from their merchant that they didn't know about. You know, right. Mm-hmm. Um, they just don't want to jeopardize their portfolio and they want to be able to present all the options that they can to win more business and keep more business. So, yeah, I, I think it's just mutual trust. Hmm. You know, yeah. it's one thing I really like that you said is um, talking about getting those operational checks and balances in place. And mm-hmm. I really do believe that's crucial because. Um, I think it goes into like a larger narrative where when I talk to people, whether it's a, an ISO or an ISV looking to expand into an independent channel, there's kind of this this misperception that it's like the thing that's so great about the 1099 channel is I just put money in and I get sales out. You know, <laughs> no risk. Yeah. Why would yeah, I? Right. Why am I worried about you know operational constraints or training or support? I mean, you know, you just you bring on a bunch of 1099s and if they make a sale, you pay, and if they don't, then you don't pay. So. That's great. That's just wonderful. I would much, you know, it's like, no, 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 no. Like, no. number one, you're not going to get any sales that way. And right. number two, this idea that there's no cost always drives me nuts. Like when I talk to, to individuals in consulting that are like, I'm like, why do you want to do 1099? Well, because there's, there's no cost unless they make a sale. Really? Well, what about the opportunity cost of finding them? What about the administrative cost of doing the application paperwork? to get them approved. What about the onboarding cost of your support people talking to them for an hour? So it's like, if you go halfway, it ends up being actually very costly and a huge opportunity cost because now you're not focused on something else. And so, you know, have you seen that same dynamic where it's like, you know, if you really want to be successful 1099, you have to go all in. I think it's the point you're making. It's like, you've got to go all in and actually do all the things you have to do for 1099s. Am I right? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you got to have both feet in. And if you don't, your agents are going to recognize that. Right. right. And I think we see it a lot in our industry and yeah. with the conglomeration, there's the contracting of the agent ISO space, neglecting right. of it outright, just they're getting out of the business. Right. And, and I think that speaks to a lot of what you're talking about. It's, it's not an inexpensive 
part of our business. It's right. It's lucrative, right? It's valuable. Yes. Like you said, everybody's trying to get into these distribution right. networks that, that exist in our space, but yeah, you have to be all in on it. No yeah. doubt. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so let's dive a little deeper into this. Um, so as you think about, um, you know, the partners that you have, so I'm sure you have as all 1099 teams, you have those that do really well, those that do really poorly. Um, are there any thoughts you have about kind of the, the, the initial process of targeting and like, how did you find the, the agents and the small ISOs that are doing well? What are your tips on like finding the right partnerships and establishing those up front? Sure. So Another very difficult part about our business is finding the right people to, to sell, right? Because to your earlier point, you're making investments in right. not only how you go about obtaining the potential leads or prospects to be your salespeople, but the investment you're making in helping them become salespeople for you to, to put that your hat on and go out there and sell for you. There's a lot of investment that goes into that. So you want to you want to do your best to get that right. It's 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 hard. Uh you know, you talk about kind of the best opportunities, they're going to exist within your network more than likely. So right. referrals, just as anything in sales, it's a big part of how you're going to find what you're looking for. If you're doing things right, the referrals tend to come. Um, but to dive deeper into that, there are vendors that you work with every single day. If if they're a vendor in your space in the merchant services business, chances are they're working with other agents, other ISOs. And if you can establish a relationship where you're sharing business in that capacity in an appropriate way, that's a very good way to find it. Um, any associations that you're involved with, I mean, get involved as much as you can. Be an advocate for our business, for our industry, um, and you'll meet other people in that regard. Um, the shows, the regional shows, the you know, the national shows, those are always great opportunities. And those, th that's kind of where you find your experienced folks, right? right. So, right. Um, and, and that's where you get the quickest hit right off the bat. You don't have to teach them what they already know. They, yeah. chances are, they know how to build a book of business. They know the value they bring and they kind of know what they're doing. You can always help them and you can offer better solutions and improve upon what they're doing, but that's the big hit. Hmm. Um, I think when you go downstream from that, there's still a ton of opportunity. Um, you know, think about your existing network outside of the credit card processing industry, right? You have friends, family, whatever that you're, that's in your network and, you know, if you're a salesperson, chances are you relate to other salespeople, maybe even right. outside of that, uh, our business, if you can, uh, if you could believe, but you know, it, you, you want to target those folks as well, right? Be active on your social pages, on your Facebook, your LinkedIn, tell everybody what you're about and what you're doing. And, and, you know, at some point you'll, you'll gain their interest and maybe even reach out to them. If they know what they're doing in other spaces, which hopefully they do, if you're in, they're in your network, you're right. a capable person, more than likely you probably associate yourself with other capable people. Um, and, and, you know, that's kind of the organic way. Um, there's of course ways that you can pay to get into other spaces as well. Sure. Um, LinkedIn is a really good, I mentioned that as part of, you know, a social presence, but you can also get more kind of proactive and active in that space Oh yeah. by using their tools, you know, like, um, sales navigator, the sales navigator and recruiter, right? Those yep. are the two primary ones we've had, especially good success with uh, recruiter in, you know, both here yep. and other organizations and channels that I've run, you can target specific prospects based on who they're working for now, right. what their titles are, how long they've been in the space, things like that. You can get creative, start target those resellers and you can work your way into an ISV integration that way. I mean, there's a lot of really cool creative ways that you can use those social sites, paid search another way. It's an expensive proposition. Yeah. Um, you got to know what you're doing. Um, right. Better yet, pay somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, yes. There's, there's a, there's a lot of those optimization companies that, you know, you can leverage if you want to get involved there, but, uh, try to think, I mean, what about, go what, a, what about if you, what about on the other flip side of like, okay, you got somebody now that's maybe like a recruiting lead. How do you identify if this is somebody that would be a good fit for your organization? Like, are there certain like kind of skills or key things that you're looking at there as far as identifying them once they're kind of, you know, you've targeted them, but now they're interested. How do you know this is somebody that's going to be a good fit? Yeah. So, you know, industry experience, that's number one. Obviously, that's a no brainer. Um, if you have any industry experience, you're a good fit here. From there, we vet you, right? Like, are you a good fit for our organization? Um and, you know, for the most part, you are, right? I mean, there's there's plenty of bad guys out there and you can recognize sure. them pretty easily. But right. um, anybody with any industry experience we're looking for, outside of that, 
a go-getter, somebody who knows how to drive their own leads, drive their own sales, right. be responsible for their own behavior, their own activity. Right. Um, just somebody who's kind of active in the sales space, knows what it takes to, you know, be on their own. Right. I, I like that because it, it what you just brought up is such a key point that a lot of uh, people miss, and that is your 1099 sales channel is only going to be as profitable as it is motivated. Yeah. Right. Because it's, it's inherently independent. This idea of like, we're going to bring on independent contractors that really need a lot of guidance and a lot of accountability. No, you're well, not. You know, W2. Right. That's a W2, <laughs> right. like by definition, you know? Yeah. Right. And what I see a lot of people do is they try to straddle that fence. It's like, if you want to build a 1099 channel, you have to understand that you're recruiting people who are going to be independent. That's what it means when it's independent contractor. So don't bring people on that are not self-motivated, that are not winners, that are not. So you might bring somebody in that maybe doesn't have industry experience and you're going to offer them training and resources. But if they don't know how to work and they don't know how to get up in the morning on their own and turn off the TV and get in their car and go out and do prospecting or get on the phone, like, right. I mean, that does, does, that doesn't work. Like that's, that's the whole idea. Yeah. And that, that brings up a good point. Cause I, you can't go outside of our industry for salespeople. I mean, we didn't all, right. Nobody majored in merchant services when they went <laughs> to college. Right. I mean, right. we all got into it one way or another sure. and it probably led from another sales role into this industry. So right. one way that we've had success in the past is using those job boards actually to post a sales position. Sure, sure. And that's when that's when you're really casting a wide net to right. those folks that have no industry experience. Right. By definition, you are going to get people who have zero merchant services experience. If you have merchant services experience, you know where to go. Right. You know right. who the players are. You know yes. what to search for at the very least. Right. You're not just, you, you don't say, huh? You're not flying blind. I'm an agent. I'm going to go find ZipRecruiter, right? Like, but you can find success there. And that's what you're, you know, you're alluding to there. Those, those qualifiers, a self-starter responsible for their own time, knows how to go out there and motivate themselves. A self-starter is a key, key identifier there. I mean, you get, for a very low investment, you can get thousands of leads from those job boards. But from there, it's a whole nother job to weed those out that are a good fit. And those you're deciding and choosing to spend your time and resources in developing. Because as you said earlier, I mean, that's an expense. And it it's is a big one. huge. So, so, so explain to me, John, if you don't mind, I mean, it would yeah. seem that what you're, you know, you're going after very independent people, go-getters, you know, okay, so once you get a really good producer, isn't there a risk that maybe they'll be, uh, you know, wooed away by another processor? You know, how do you, how yeah. do you, how do you overcome this and sort of have that trust going both ways? Sure. Yeah. And you said it right there. Trust. I hate to go back to it again, but that is really the number one most important factor, I think, when any agent or ISO is working with their processor relationship, right? Mm -hmm. They've been, a lot of us have been burned in one way or another, especially right. our agent and ISO partners, right? right? So whether it's burned on residuals, burned because their portfolio got, you know, jacked up and worse, they didn't make any money off it. Anything that puts their portfolio in jeopardy, bad support, uh, outsource support, whatever it is, I mean, they, if your partner that you brought on board, ultimately invested your resources in to help get them trained, comfortable with working with you. If they are comfortable to the point where they trust every merchant that they bring on board to you is going to get taken care of, mm -hmm. then that's the number one key, I would think. Yeah. And, that, and that's also the hardest thing to achieve, right? For sure. And, you know, one of the ways that you do achieve that is with having an experienced staff. Again, I go back to it. It's not easy to find. It's not easy to build. None of this is easy or else everybody would be doing it, right? And right, everybody right. would just... So, you know, finding that experience group to help support your agents. And, you know, there's, I mean, there's a lot that goes into why people continue to work with you. Do you have the products to compete in the space, right? right. Do you have a differentiator. Again, I go back to the fact that we're so involved in a merchant's business now that it's literally the payments has something to do with how their business functions. When you right. talk about the different POS solutions and everything like that, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, if you can provide the right solution for your agents to go out there and sell, then it's no longer a commodity, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, on top of that, options, you know, maneuverability, I guess, is probably the easiest way to say it, right? You want to be ahead of any trends that are happening out there, of course. Mm -hmm. But if you're not, you better be able to adapt to them when they happen, right? Right, so, right. Whether right. that's cash discount, surcharging, the various POS options that they have out there, uh, whatever it may be, right? High risk options, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, really the easiest way to sum up, you know, that section really is just a, I mean, how do you keep a, uh, an agent from leaving you? Provide everything that they need, which is easier said than done. Don't give them a reason to the leave. The more options and the more <laughs> I can maneuver to help facilitate everything that they're looking for, yeah. the better off they're going to be and the less likely they are to have to look around. Hmm. You know, what's so, so interesting to me, John, is, um, you know, it's hard nowadays to find a processing company that doesn't have these retention alerts set up for the merchants. Like, you know, if a merchant normally does, let's say uh, 50000 a month and they go for three days without processing, right? Mm -hmm. Here comes our alert right, and our yeah. team is going to reach out right away, right? Then those same, those same companies will hire me to consult and I'll come in and I'll say, let's, let's take a look at your agent roster. Oh, here's a rep that made five, six sales a month for four months straight and hasn't made a sale for 60 days. Has anybody reached out? <laughs> no, right. no, no. Now we would reach out to that one merchant in the portfolio, but the guy that brings us 10 deals a month, six deals a month yeah. for a year. No, we don't really care to reach out to that individual if they stop producing, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of it is, again, it goes back to this misperception that from an operational perspective, from a structural perspective, the independent contractor model is just something that's kind of like there. We're happy we have it. We'll pay when you make a sale, but you don't work for us. So we don't really need to do anything with you. Right. And that is just not a winning strategy. You know, yeah. like it's just not, you know, you have to reach out, you have to communicate, you have to be aware of, yeah, I realize it's not your employee, but it is somebody who's selling for your organization. And so when they're doing well, you reach out and congratulate them when they're doing poorly. You reach out and find out what's going on and see if you can help. I mean, is that the kind of things that you run into when you're working with these people? Yeah, no doubt. And it's something that I've had a lot of success with over the years here at Rev19 as well as other organizations. So one of the key metrics that we look at on a regular basis is those producing agents on a month over month basis. And there's a lot of different mechanisms and tools you can use to be successful in that. Uh, I encourage you to go out and find one that works for you, but you know, various metrics like uh, looking at your overall number of how many of your agents are submitting three or more deals a month. Right. Right. That, that's a that's a good solid number of somebody who's probably spending a fair amount of time in this business. Right. You know, dedicating their time to going out there and prospecting, finding more. If you can grow that space, then you're going to grow that 80 20. That kind of drives the majority right. of the portfolio. Then you review, you know, a six month average or a three month average, for example. And right. You can, can sort your list that whatever CRM tool you're using, sort that way and start to identify those trends way before, like your example, where they haven't submitted anything in six months, they fell off the face of the earth. Right. If you build a system where you can recognize that even while it's happening, chances exactly. are it's not as dramatic and it's probably going from 10 to eight to four to two to zero. Right. And if you can catch it at eight and four and whatever, then yeah. you're, you're, you're kind of stopping the bleeding at that point. So yeah. Keeping an eye on, and, and that should be happening naturally as long as you're taking care of your agents and you've built a structure that, that you know, an operational structure that takes care of them. Do you have relationship managers that are dedicated to your agents? Do you have right. a sales support group that's uh, dedicated and motivated to help those agents? So yeah. I totally agree. With you. I mean, that's where you look first. You want to get ahead of it. To your example, you get that alert that says they haven't batched out in 30 days or whatever your alert system is. Right. It's too late anyway. Exactly, you know I mean? exactly. That's more of a good to know, get the cancellation paperwork ready. <laughs> you might have to do a couple months of refunds. You know right, I mean? right. You really want that alert after like two days or three days. It's like, you know, exactly. and, and you know, so um, one other random off the wall question I just thought of, and then I want to get a little more information on Rev19. Um, with uh, COVID, uh, you know, and, and a lot of states opening up, some closing back up apparently, but, you know, hopefully going more towards open. Um, as we're, you know, moving that direction, one thing I just thought of that's uh, really interesting is, you know, I know a lot of uh, processors out there that have these big independent channels, you know, the last 60 days have seen obviously a massive, you know, drop in new submissions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, wouldn't you think, and I'm wondering if you have any advice on this, you know, wouldn't you think that as, as the states are opening back up, you got to be strategic in the way you reach out and reactivate and see like what's going on. You know, are they still selling? Are they still selling for you? Or, you know, like do you have any thoughts about like, how, what are you guys doing to like get the team? Let's like, let's go. You know, we're open. What do yeah. we do now? No doubt. So, um, you know, there's a few things that we do. So we've, we've, suggested a strategy for our agents on kind of how to weather the storm through this pandemic. And I know you've been very vocal about how you can do that it really comes down to 
supporting your existing merchants because you obviously want to keep that right. revenue stream intact once things start cranking up. But you also have to keep these folks motivated to go out there yes. and close more deals right. through this as well. Your residuals, it probably went like that, right? I mean, yeah, sure. it, it, it happened because everybody closed the door. And when was the last time you swiped a credit card in certain states, right? I'm in the greater Boston area. Forget about it. I mean, we've been shut down for months. So, yeah. um, you know, you have to find a way to get motivated because you just have no other choice, right? So right. I, the example I always use is um, I wouldn't go to a Christmas tree lot and try to switch out their terminal on December 20th. The same way I wouldn't right. go try to pitch a grocery store right now who's understaffed and getting crushed with you know uh, demand and all these additional regulations, right? I would have, uh, uh, you know, we've been suggesting to our agents, go out to their restaurant customers, start offering online ordering, right? Start going back to your existing base and offering cash discount. It's gonna help, you know, it's gonna help ease the burden on the merchant themselves Right. And at a time where consumers are more willing to support their customer base than they ever have before. Go to your go to your merchants and go like their Facebook page. Go put a positive review on their, um, you know, on their Yelp page or whatever. Get their attention right. in really positive ways to help them come out of this. And as things start to open up, just build a plan. Start to get back into your old rhythm. If you were you know, go to three meetings a week, then start going to one a week, start going to two a week, start going to three a week, you know, start to be ahead of the openings for sure, because they're yeah. happening, right? And, yep. And be in touch with your customer base as much as anything. Absolutely. Well, so this has been such great information, John. I definitely want to give you a chance to talk about Rev19 a little bit. Um, can you kind of give us maybe one or two things that you feel like our listeners might be interested to know that would set Rev19 apart from maybe other companies? And you've already talked about so many of them. Um, and then when you're done with that, go ahead and give them some information about how they can learn more about Rev19 and where they'd reach out. Sure, I appreciate that, James. So um, Rev19, I mean, we're, we're a wholesale ISO with multiple different processor relationships. Uh, gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of who you're working with and where you can place your deals. Uh, aside from, you know, the aggressive rev share, strong bonuses, all that kind of good stuff. I mean, we're as competitive as anybody else out there. But what really sets us apart is we're truly a full-fledged fintech company. We have an in-house team of developers, all U.S.-based, pumping out. Uh, you know, they're, they're working on developing and supporting our future tech stack. So we're going to have a gateway here in August that'll be fully live and operational, followed shortly with a PayFact platform that's really going to change the game for us in the ISD space. Hmm. going to drive a lot of partnerships in that regard. And um, we actually just recently started a project that's really exciting to become a full auth and settlement platform here by the end of the year, if not Q1 of 2021. Hmm. So ambitious goals, yeah. a lot of exciting things happening here at Rev19 that's going to open the doors up for us. But um, first things first, keep an eye out for that Apex Gateway to come. And um, yeah, I mean, if anything, it's Rev19 from the start has been working to try to change the industry in a really positive way. And uh, by doing things on the up and up and just doing things the right way. We're partner first, we're merchant first. Uh, one unique commitment that we make to our agents and ISOs is we will not raise the rates or add additional fees on your portfolio without your permission. It's not something we believe hmm. in. Uh, we're in it for oh. the long term with you. You are, I mean, our agents and ISOs is what drives our business. We are fully committed to that space, despite other parts of our industry, maybe not being so interested in that space. So we are fully committed 100% to this space for sure. That's awesome, man. So uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to want to learn more. Where would you send them? Sure. Rev19.net. That's our website. Uh, you can, of course, give me a call directly. My number is 817-754-1689. My email, john at rev19.net. Happy to talk to any of your listeners out there. Would love to learn uh, more about the people listening. Of course, like us on LinkedIn, follow us on Facebook, follow our promotions. This month, we're doing an agent ISO promotion. To your point, help everybody get out there and start yeah, selling again. Get some motivation. Uh, yeah, motivation, $3,000 grand prize. We have tiers in between, right? So even if you're, if you don't think you'll compete for that number one spot, we pay at different tiers and we're doing free processing for any cash discount or surcharge merchants, no fixed costs whatsoever. We're waiving swipe simple fees, for example, for the next three months to help our agents go out there and sell in a tougher environment. So like our page, follow us on Facebook, rev19.net uh, to learn more. And of course, I hope to hear from a lot of your listeners out there after this. Awesome. Hey, John, thank you so much for your time today. Great insights, great information, and uh, really appreciate you taking the time. 
This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. Everybody, we had some good news out of the U.S. Commerce Department. Retail sales soared by 17.7% in May. Wow. Yeah, that was the single largest monthly jump ever recorded and uh, more than double what uh, the rate the economists had been forecasting. Wow. Okay, yeah. well, that's good. Yeah, they were, I think the, the standard Dow Jones analyst uh, forecast was 8%. Wow, okay. Wow, that's yeah. that's definitely a sizable difference there. Yeah, it's a huge difference. And what's interesting to put it in perspective is, uh, you know, if you look back to 2001 after the 9-11 attacks. Right. In October, you know, sales were really dampened after following the attacks. Mm -hmm. And uh, the following month in um, in October of 2001, the gain was 6.7%. Okay. So this gives you sort of a perspective. I mean, obviously, there was a lot of pent-up demand out there. Well, right. Uh, Well, and I think also, too, of course, you know, as as tragic as 9-11 was, it didn't actually shut down retail. Right. It shut down airlines. It made a lot of things really messy. Right. But, I mean, I think the pandemic definitely had a... Definitely cut cut into retail. Sure, sure. So that 17.7% jump is an increase from April. Um, when sales plummeted 16.4%. So we're still looking at a decent increase. Now, do you have Uh, any idea, I don't know if the stats included, I mean, where are we at relative to, say, February? You know know what I mean? Like pre-COVID-19 levels. uh, We're about not quite on par with February. Oh, but it's actually getting close. It's getting close. Really? uh, That shocks me. I don't have the chart right here in front of me. But That's I amazing. The um, chart I was looking at. Let me just get take a quick look. No, I don't have that chart right here, but I believe it was something like. Uh, hold on, I'm going to get it. I got it right. Oh, no, you're fine. Um, in February, it was about sales were up about two. Okay. Okay. So if you look at this, you know, in relation, it's pretty close. Wow. We're up about 1.3. Wow. Well, that's really strong. I'm actually surprised by that. So I was very strong. And this is some of the things that really surprised me. Clothing and accessory stores had the largest gain in May, 188%. Well, and and again, that's got to be... they were closed down. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, they they went from zero to one. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like Right. But still, they at least went up. Yeah, of course. Sure. And the other things that I thought were interesting, because again, it shows that they opened up again, musical instrument stores, hobby stores, uh, sporting goods stores, all posted really strong gains. Hmm. Okay. Uh, again, because they were open, right? Um, right, right. So, um, and, and the other thing I thought was important is that these gains included food sales. Oh, okay. Uh, so that's, okay. that's lumped, that's lumped into that. That's lumped into this. It's not just, you know, the, the generalized retail. It's okay. everything excluding auto sales. Okay. Okay. So, um, you know, so the total sales in May for retail and food services amounted to $485.5 billion in May. That's pretty healthy if you ask me. Yeah. Um, and to put this into perspective, I was just, I wanted to kind of put it in perspective. So I looked at some some other data uh, from an organization called Statista, which lists a lot of data all yeah, the time, as right. its name would imply. Um, uh, Walmart expects retail sales this year globally to top $527 billion. Wow. Okay. So, you know, put and Amazon expects for the year about $268 billion, just north of that. Okay. So if you put that in perspective, basically... Retail sales in May were better than what Walmart expects for the whole year. Right. And yeah. that's, you know, that's nothing to, nothing to, to sneeze you know, at. That's pretty good. To scoff at, right? Right, right. And so the message I think here 
is that things are starting to turn around as more states allow open, you know, businesses to right. start opening, as consumers feel more secure venturing out. But, you know, the, the overall threat isn't over. You know, there are still many states where cases are on the rise, and there's every indication that we'll probably see another surge, maybe in the fall. Um, so I think, I mean, this is my opinion, and I, but I believe you would probably agree that it's more important than ever that merchants be prepared for another potential lockdown, another potential downturn, and it's incumbent upon agents and ISOs to help them out. You know, right. this is the time to help them be, to understand, you know, how to best serve their consumers in this new environment. Right. Um, sure. As well as any future you know, changes what or whatever. Bring, yep. You know, and so it's a great time to talk about alternative service models, you know, like uh, order ahead with curbside which I sure. think is going to keep on going, you know, infinitely. Yep. Yep. Um, order, um, getting e-commerce sites operational. You know, we talked yep. with John today and he was talking about, you know, reaching out to merchants and helping them. This is the time to be talking to them. Like, hey, if you don't have an e-commerce site up now and it's not a good working e-commerce site, right. you need trouble. to get working on that. Yeah, uh, cash sure. discounting, of course, because everybody's, you know, looking for, to save money. And the other thing I wanted to mention is invoiced payments. You know, um, yeah. that's where, sure. where business emails, invoices with links that customers can use to pay from their PCs or their mobile devices or whatever. I talked um, just recently with Derek Webster. He's the uh, founder of uh, CardFlight. Okay, sure. He told me that he's seen use of his invoicing product more than double since March. Wow. Okay. That's pretty incredible. And he said, you know, listen, a lot of it's, you know, service companies, plumbers, electricians, sure. cleaners. He said, but you'd be surprised. We even get it yeah. with some things that you're not, think that you would not think of off the top of your head. Hmm. And that's and, interesting because I feel like that's a, definitely a vulnerability where uh, if processors are not careful and they don't uh, make sure their merchants know that that is available or make it available, it could very easily go to something like a QuickBooks that was exactly yeah. what I was just going to say, because, you know, when I was talking with Derek, I said, so, you know, your invoicing product is like QuickBooks, right? Right. And he's like, well, no, it's better than QuickBooks. <laughs> you know, right. Of course he's going right. to say that. But, right. But, but that's what made me think about it, because I use QuickBooks. I'm sure you probably use QuickBooks. Yes. I use that invoicing thing. But, um, you know, if you're out there selling the merchants, find a solution that, that allows you to compete with QuickBooks. Yeah, because for sure, people like you and I are using QuickBooks just because it's there and it's convenient. Mm -hmm. But if if I had a service provider come to me and say, "Hey, I can set you up for uh, cash discounting and invoicing," right, and have an integration uh, with QuickBooks potentially, exactly, because that's the reason everybody uses it. Like we we don't use the QuickBooks invoicing side um, because we have a system that's integrated with it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, right. And so I think that's, that's the key the is. Thing. But you could easily. I mean, I don't think it's a takes a technology genius to be able to do that. No, it doesn't. You just have to have the right tech. And that's that's the thing is the ISOs have to offer the right technology to compete. So. Right, right. Well, great stuff as always, Patty. Very interesting. We'll be It'll be obviously really interesting just to kind of see how things develop and hopefully things keep moving forward for the industry. It's uh, it's kind of an exciting time, I feel like, just kind of getting things back up and going and seeing who's still who's still making it happen and right. uh, and who's ready to jump back into the, on the offense and make something happen, you know? And, and who's ready to jump in with some new ideas. I mean, that's the yeah. thing about yeah. this industry. It's always been driven by new ideas, right? Right, right. And, and now is an opportunity for ISOs and agents to really come come to the table with, with ideas that work. Yep, I agree 100%. So, yeah. awesome, Patty. Good stuff as always. Thanks, James. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. Hey everybody, I am here today with Calvin. Calvin is the founder of Next Generation Payments. Uh, and uh, Calvin, uh, and, and of course, Calvin, you really have a, it's a single person shop right now. Is that right? 
You're the uh, guy. No, it's actually, I got about 12, 12 sub-agents right now, but I'm moving towards a single shop, yes. Really? Hold yeah. on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this interview over again. Hold on, I want to get a little more context. Wait a minute. <laughs> so, <laughs> hold on a second. So wait, so you have 12 sub-agents right now? Yes. Okay, all right. And you're, okay, that's interesting. And these are like local sub-agents, right? No, Massachusetts, All over the place. Florida, yep, yep. Okay, and are they also kind of focused on selling the cash discounting as well? Is that the idea? Correct. Okay, got it. All right. Okay, so I got a little bit more context. Okay, I'm ready. Let me try again. <laughs> all right, there we go. Uh, all right, everybody. I am here today with Calvin. Calvin is the founder of Next Generation Payments, uh, a uh, small ISO with some sub-agents there. How are you doing today, Calvin? Great yourself. I am doing awesome. Uh, so I got this really interesting, I believe it was an email or a LinkedIn message, I can't remember, uh, from Calvin. Um, I had put out a video uh, maybe two, three weeks ago about why uh, large merchants don't like cash discounting. And Calvin and I started up a conversation because he actually has been selling cash discounting to larger merchant accounts. And so we were talking about, okay, how does that happen and everything like that. And so today we're going to talk about, you know, really how to sell cash discounting to larger merchant accounts. Um, and so um, a couple questions I have for you, Calvin. So first of all, how long have you been involved with merchant sales? And, you know, when did you kind of switch that focus over to cash discounting? Firstly, uh, James, thanks for having me on the show. And sure. uh, so real quick, uh, a little story about myself is I was introduced to merchant services back in 2007. Actually came from corporate America selling IT okay. and uh, maxed out that plan. I was in a you know call center setting and uh, maxed out that plan, got bored. And uh, real story short was I, <laughs> I actually put a, a resume on careerbowler.com. Sure. And a company by the name of Vericom actually found me and flew me out of California. And that's how I learned about merchant services. And that was in 2007. Um, moved back to Boston, started an ISO back then. I had about 34 active sales reps at my peak. We were doing about 110 mids a month. Um, struggled to scale at that time, mm -hmm. you know, with, you know, the retention and training of new reps. You know how that goes. Absolutely. So, yep. you know, very time consuming. Um, so I sold my portfolio back then and left the industry, moved down to Florida and re-entered the industry in 2018, heard about cash discounting and literally learned about it, studied about it, became super obsessed about it and just went crazy, went crazy with it. So <laughs> that's awesome, man. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I, I really did appreciate the email you sent and I kind of, you know, it really got my mind, you know, going um, because I thought this topic would be really good for our audience. Um, so let's start with this. Why do you believe cash discounting is a great fit for some of these larger merchants, maybe doing like 100,000 in volume or more? You know, what's your, what's your thought process on why you believe that is a good fit for those merchant accounts? So when I look at cash discounting, I do believe it's for everyone, um, specific verticals, but I do believe it's for larger merchants itself as well. And the reason why is because these merchants also have pain points, right? And I don't really sell on pricing. I sell on value. Sure. So I present value first. And my first thing is I, you know, I listen to the pain points from a merchant and identify those pain points. And what I do is, for example, I had a merchant that was paying seven plus in, in fees, uh, $7,000 in fees. And what I do is I compound that and I say, okay, Mr. Merchant, you're paying about 84 grand a year, right? And what I do is I have them, I ask a lot of questions. And in those questions, I'll have them tell me why they should be doing it. So for example, I had a merchant that told me that they were trying to put their kid through college. Sure. So they found that $84,000 as being more value versus having to, oh, you know what, that makes sense. How does it work? Sure. You see, sure. so so it's presenting all of that. Have them sell themselves on why this program would work. So they're not finding me selling it. I'm just literally agreeing to what they say. Wow, I like that. I like that a lot. Well, that this is a good good segue for my next question. So yeah. let's talk about the sales process. Let's dive a little bit deeper into that. So let's start with the the decision maker. Um, you know, a lot of agents, and not even cash discount specific, a lot of agents just frankly have a hard time getting in contact with a decision maker at a large company or even how to go after it. So do you have any tips for them on just like how do you get the decision maker to begin with? Uh, great question. So it's simple networking, right? Um, I have peers uh, that work for ADP, so uh, or sure. peers, sure. peers that work for uh, food distribution companies like uh, CBI, Cheney Brothers, Cisco. So they already have the foot in the door, 
And it's literally just working with these pairs or professional, um, you know, associations like credit unions and so forth. So I really strategically partner up with these folks. And that's how I get my foot in the door to get a conversation going. Hmm. But what I also found was, James, was that typically when I speak to an owner, they'll really pass me on to their controller or GM. Hmm. Right. Those are the folks that are handling their day-to-day. So it's literally sitting down, having a conversation. And surprisingly, some of these folks don't even know how to read a statement. They just go, hey, this is costing us a lot of money. So Mm -hmm. it kind of saved me that. It's like, well, you know, how, you know, speaking to the owner and, you know, obviously I already have a lot of that leverage saying, okay, you know what? Bob gave me permission to sit down with you guys. Sure. He obviously doesn't like the problem that he currently has. I'm here to bring change. You know, so it comes down to confidence, really. When I have an unwavering belief that I, I, I sincerely believe that I'm, you know, doing a, a, a justice or, or I would be doing a disservice, really, if I'm not talking about cash discounting hmm. or I'm not here to actually show you guys that you can actually save. And again, it's painting a vision for the merchant, you know, hey, what are you guys currently going through? And, you know, they are always identifying some sort of pain maybe lack of inventory if it's a restaurant or, you know, they're looking to hire a new, you know, person. So it's showing them that. And if you look at a PL statement, right, credit card processing is on there. Oh, yeah. So It has, so, always has its own line item on the PL. So right, it's a major part of the PL. Exactly. So, again, it's, it's, it's showing value. And, and it's, it's really, a, to be honest, I don't have, so every merchant is different. Right. So it's not like I have a, a an actual script or it's just literally listening. That's my biggest thing is just to listen yeah. and find pain and then literally just introducing it. And then obviously the biggest objection I would get is, well, what would my customers think about? This? Of course. So it's like, listen, give us a 60 day trial. All right. I'll be here to hold your hand, help train the staff. And this is what I found was a lot of folks really don't take the time to help educate staff. Mm-hmm. on how to deal mm-hmm. with the objections and you know when you actually take the time to help communicate and educate how this program is beneficial then the staff also now understands that hey we literally saving our jobs or we say well in, in one case i had a guy's like well you trying to tell me maybe i could actually get a raise because now there's more money coming to the plate so yeah. so yes <laughs> you know it's fun i actually have more fun speaking with larger merchants because you know, they business folks, they, they understand yeah. the bottom line, you know, yeah. so. It's really interesting. Like so much of what you're saying resonates with me because, um, probably the last year and a half I sold merchant services full time. All I did was sell large merchants. Now cash discounting didn't exist or at least it wasn't a big deal back right. then, right? <laughs> this is like six years ago. So, you know, it wasn't like a huge thing. Um, but you know, so much of what you said, one of the things that really stuck out to me was the confidence. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Calvin, but it's like, selling large merchants it's like i love what you said it's like so hard to tell an agent this is how to sell a large merchant because every large merchant is so different but it's like the one constant is you have this like unwavering confidence and passion and then that's what really kind of gets your foot in the door you know you mentioned it's kind of like you're networking your way to the top but then when you get down to the person that's actually going to be making the recommendation it's about that confidence that you have in yourself and in what you're selling right 100% 100% correct. You know, to me, it all comes down to mindset. So if you have the mindset of, hey, I'm coming to win, I'm really coming to help, you know, make a difference. And with that mindset, I believe that, I mean, again, there's always going to be some sort of objections. Like, for example, one of, one of them was, hey, well, what are we going to do with my existing systems? So, you know, again, it depends on an agent. I'm not right. going to tell an agent to do this, but, you know, you see the value of it. Right. I, I literally do stuff out of pocket. You yeah. know, because you know, hundred percent discounting the next month, it's already paid itself off. So, right. you know, you gotta you gotta be able to put some skin in the game, man. Yeah. And, and and you know, partner up with these merchants and some merchants, to be honest, that have multiple locations. And in what I found was a lot of these guys also belong to charities and they like to give. Yeah. And part of what I do is okay. I noticed you guys are part of the Boys and Girls Club. Now, you know. I like to also give as well. How can I help? And, you know, it's, again, being transparent. Right. So with one specific owner that I mentioned, Boys and Girls Club, he literally likes to give thousands of dollars a month. And I said, listen, 
your program with me right now generates X amount of revenue. Would you like to donate that as well? And he's like, really? So I have loyalty with this guy. He's been with me for the last two years. Right. He'll never go anywhere else. Right. Just because of that. Yep. You know, so I think it's being observant to to people. And what is exactly they saying? And again, pain point, you know, is it family or is it the business itself? I had a gentleman, by the way, that the business really owned him and he was losing. He was actually going through marital issues. And, you know, the amount of savings we showed him, he now has room to hire an actual GM. So he could literally step away a little bit. And his wife came to thank me months later because they went on a cruise <laughs> and... You know, awesome. so, so, it's little, so it's little things like yeah. that that really, you know, gives me yeah. goosebumps. It's not about the money at this point. It's about generally yeah. making a difference in these right. folks' lives. And I'll tell you, you know, Calvin, one thing I think our audience may not understand, many of them who only have sold smaller accounts, I think there's this misperception that if I'm dealing with a large merchant and let's say they're doing 2 million a month in volume or a million a month in volume, there's this, this misperception that, well, that person's making $100,000 a month personally. No. no, like a lot of times they're making 15, 20,000 a month. Like they're putting Correct. so much back into their business that when you go, like I just did a statement uh, a couple of days ago for somebody where the merchant was doing um, about 2 million a month in volume. And through, we were in this case, it was interchange optimization, not cash discount, right. but we were saving the merchant about $10,000 a month. Well, that money drops right to the bottom line. So they yes. just got $120,000 a year raise and they were probably making around 200,000. Well, <laughs> that's a big right. deal. That's a big, uh, that's a ex- lot of money. Ex- exactly, exactly. Yeah, so I think I think that's there. So let me ask you one other question because we kind of the, the last question I was going to ask was about you know kind of your tip about selling larger accounts, but I think you just covered it, you know. And so right. the other question I have is a really specific one. Um, a lot of you know, obviously, we know the objection from the merchant is going to be about their customers, and you talked about the free trial as kind of your way of like, hey, test it out. You'll see it works fine. Um, what about the one objection I always get from the agents on the larger accounts is I'm not going to charge them 3.99% because they're so big. Um, do you mind sharing any information about like, how do you think about pricing when it comes to cash discounting on larger merchant accounts in terms of, you know, the margin you're generating and is there pushback from their side? Like, well, our effective rates currently 2.1%. Why would we go to whatever? What are your thoughts on that? So I keep, again, I don't sell on pricing, it's value. And I generally keep it all at 4%, believe it or not. So I have larger merchants at, at 4%. And also understand that I'm giving back. So I'm sure. investing in some way. So if it's, if, it's, if it's, you know, investing back into the charity of their choice, or I'll do a rev share program with some merchants where they're getting money back. So I keep it very, very stern, very simple. Right. You right. know, I have the saying, keep it simple. You right. know, and and you know, merchants love the transparency, and that's hmm. and that's. I've never had any type of objection. What can we lower it? Even with certain customers, especially in the restaurant space. So yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, Calvin, I wish I had more time to jump into all this stuff, but uh, that was just some great information. And if if nothing else, I hope that, you know, myself included, I hope our industry can kind of start to open our minds a little bit to this idea that even larger merchants can, you know, do cash discounting, can do it at potentially full price, and obviously uh, create some life-changing residual opportunities in the process. I agree 100%, James. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And Again, I'm an advocate for cash discounting. It's what brought me back into the industry. You right. know, when I compare the accounts, so back in the day there was US Singular. I had about 17 locations back then. And, you know, I look at that and I look at today with cash discount. I'm like, wow. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the amount of money so, you left on the table back then compared to if they were right, on cash discounting right, is ridiculous. Right. Yeah. But also just to play into what you said, you know, I guess people generally do think that, you know, because there's so much money, it's at least taking a lot of money and putting it back into the business or, you know, looking for other avenues uh, to how to improve, really. Right. So. Right. But you'll find that people who have a large business or who make a lot of money are usually very interested in making more. Right. Correct. You know? Right. I don't know. It's right. just just an observation. <laughs> it's well, like they also have a bigger pool to work with, right? They do. And but it's they, like, you know, you go to these people and it's like they're already making maybe they are already making a million dollars a year, right? And but you right. bring them something that's gonna make them an extra five thousand dollars a month, they're yeah. gonna be super interested in that. Yeah, it's not like, oh, we're making a million a year, we're good. No, like right. they yeah. wanna make more. So, you know, there's always that opportunity. The problem is I think there's there's agents making five thousand I have sub agents making five grand a month and 
they become very complacent. Yes. But one thing I do tell them is I'm, I don't micromanage. If that's your your sweet spot, right? If that's your definition of success. That's it. That's right. Fine, you know, right. Right. But it, it is sometimes just, it is sometimes sad though when you see people put that ceiling, you know, so low on themselves. Right. Where it's like mm-hmm. really like that, you know. I mean. You could you could work you know twenty hours a week and and get more you know and so you know but but you know again I like what you said it's like respect everybody's individual definition of success and then you work from there you know and help them map right. to that so Calvin hey great stuff man we are we got to wrap this session up but uh, really good stuff and we'll have to get you back on here sometime for more of a full interview for sure really thank appreciate you so it, much Calvin. James thank you so much Patty it's been a pleasure and definitely been you know very 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 flattering to just you know speak to you guys i look up to you guys i never knew about you guys back then but back now i listen to you guys every single day on the podcast so awesome man. Oh, keep it up you. i love it thank you so much thanks guys. calvin a great one thank you for listening to the merchant sales podcast whether you are an industry veteran processing executive or just trying to learn about the payment space we appreciate your time The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.